What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Mystery Ranch, built for the mission. And if you haven't been rocking a Mystery Ranch Fireline pack for the entirety of your career, well, you're doing it wrong and your back probably hates you. But in addition to the most well-built, the most comfortable, and the baddest assist, is that even a word? Baddest assist? Whatever, I'm going to use it. I said it. The most baddest assist fire packs in the game that make a ton of other stuff, like these two packs that I'm looking at right now. That being the Assault 21 and the three-way briefcase, both in wildfire black. Now, why am I mentioning these specific uh, packs? Well, that's because a portion of the proceeds from pack sales of these two specific packs are going to go back to the Backbone series. Yeah. If you don't know what the Backbone series is, well, go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check it out because... They are giving away $1,000 grants to those people that are selected for the Mystery Ranch Backbone Series scholarships. So if you're going to tell a awesome story about Wildland Fire, tell your story about what you do and how you're going to better the uh, Wildland Fire game. Well, you had an opportunity to win a little bit of change to get some education under your belt. And I know that stuff's not cheap. So luckily, Mystery Ranch is helping you folks out in the field with that especially those folks that are going above and beyond. So head over to www.mysteryranch.com and check out the Backbone series. And while you're at it, check out that three-way briefcase and that Assault 21, both in wildfire black. Yeah, it's for a good cause and it's going back to those folks in the field. So once again, www.mysteryranch.com and check it out. The Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our premier coffee sponsor, and that's going to be none other than Hot Shop Brewery. It's kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause, and a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. Speaking of which, they were uh, apparently running around up there at Old Sam's event, the Rip and Lips event, up there in uh, Prineville this last weekend, and uh, here was one hell of a party and one hell of a uh, fundraiser. So kudos to you folks, and uh, yeah. We'll be seeing you uh, next year, hopefully. Hopefully next year I can make it. Anyways, Hotshot Brewery, besides kick-ass coffee for kick-ass causes, they make a ton of other stuff, like all of your wildland firefighter-themed apparel, all of the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right, and a bunch of other stuff. Hell, they even sell some of the uh, Anchor Point merch over there. So if you're looking to get your hands on some of those posters, like the uh, Do Rad Stuff Squints poster or one of the Band of Brothers tees or one of the Fire Fiend tees, well, look no further than www.hotshotbrewing.com. Go over there and check it out. The Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our buddy Booze over at the Ass Movement. And what that stands for? Well, it's the Anti-Surface Shitting Movement. Yeah. So if you got a problem pooper on the crew and you want to get the best, the very best in poo bearing propaganda, head over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement where you can get all of your poo bearing propaganda needs. Hell, they got shirts, stickers, uh, posters. They've got patches. Hell, even used to, I don't know if he still has it, but he uh, had a, a turd trowel at one point and I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, but it's a great place to uh, point people to educate them on how to do the number two in the woods the right way. And once again, you can go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement where listeners to the Anchor Point podcast can get 10% off their entire order by using the code anchorpointass10 at checkout. Once again, www.thefirewild.com. Check out the ass movement. 
And last but not least, the Anchor Point Podcast is going to be brought to you by the Smoky Generation, also known as the American Wildfire Experience. And if you don't know what that is, well, head over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check it out because it is a collection of hundreds of stories dating all the way back to the 1940s, all about wildland fire. And it's not just uh, relegated to North America anymore. It is a global affair. It's a... uh, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Not only that is it the collection of stories, but they're also running the Smoky Generation grants, which is also pretty damn cool. So if you uh, put your name in the hat this year, kudos to you doing the good work. And uh, yeah, best of luck to you. So yeah, we'll see. Uh, hopefully we can get Bethany on the show to announce some winners here pretty soon. And yeah, we'll be looking for that one coming up. So if you want to find out more, go over to www.thesmokygeneration.com or www.americanwildfireexperience.org and check it out. Bethany, you have a kick-ass organization. Keep it up. The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. going on ladies and gentlemen welcome back to another episode of the anchor point podcast hope everybody's doing well and i hope everybody's getting uh, a couple r&r days from their uh what's seeming to be consecutive roles down to region three there in the desert southwest um yeah it's uh heating up to be a pretty gnarly season and hopefully it's not too crazy because y'all need some rest and this whole doing more with less thing it just isn't panning out with that being said, though, today's episode, we are going to have a conversation exactly about that, doing more with less. And we're also going to be uh, discussing how people are pissed. I know all y'all are just mad. You guys are mad out there. And it's totally understandable. And I totally understand why people are leaving. And that's why today we are going to talk about the great exodus. Now, this is a uh, article that was written by my good friend Bree Orcasitas uh, a couple months ago. Um, and yeah. It's a powerful and very telling article about all of the things that is going on behind the scenes, all the ugly little things that are happening with our community, our wildland fire family, and why people are leaving in droves to either go to the private sector or go to private contracting, leave fire altogether, go to Cal Fire and get a municipal job. And you know what? I get it. We're being promised a lot. And uh, so far, we have yet to deliver. So... We'll see. But today on the episode, like I said, we're going to be talking about the great Exodus and her inspiration and all the little factors that went into writing this article and how it is so relevant today. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce my good friend, Bree Orcasitas. Welcome to the Anchor Point. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Today on the show, I've got my good friend, Bree Orcasitas. How you doing, homie? 
I'm doing all right. How you doing? Not too bad. I just had a long uh, trade show event down in Houston, Texas. And uh, yeah, um, I'm back finally. It's nice. Yeah, I heard you had a little bit of a delay getting back. So way to go there. I had many delays. (laughs) I had many delays. Uh, Speaking of which, actually, I had one thing that was very expedited. And then one thing that was very delayed. So my son was born last Thursday and uh, the day before my wife's birthday. <laughs> so May, That's a whole lot happening at once. Oh man, it was like zero to 120 in a split second. <laughs> like I landed in Houston and went to this trade show. And then that next day when we were doing setup, it was just like, ah, panic, don't panic, whatever. I was panicking. I was not going to lie. But uh, yeah, baby Langston was born on May 26th. Yeah. That's so awesome. Number two. Number two. And here I am. Congrats. Here I am stuck in Houston and I can't do fuck all about it. Yeah. That's so hopeless. That's the worst. It's so bad. Oh man. man. So, but yeah, Yeah. I've heard plenty of those stories of, you know, fire guys, (laughs) wives getting into labor while they're out on an assignment. And then it's just kind of like the planes, trains and automobiles disaster trying to get them back home in time. And yeah. I'd say it's like 50, 50. It actually works out that they get back, but yeah. Getting back on time. Now that's a different subject, but usually 99% of the time they get back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's not like they're required to be held back. Usually they're pretty cool about it and let them go home, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, coming from the experience of someone who's given birth, I'd have to say you know, women have to do all the work anyway. So, oh, hundred <laughs> percent. And it doesn't stop just after like childbirth. It's just like, oh no, you had a kid. Guess what? Well, oh, man. sorry, men don't have these wonderful organs, <laughs> organs that you know produce all the food and all the life. So, kudos <sighs> to the ladies out there. You're speaking the truth, man. Like I had our little girl, and it was hellacious. It was, oh man, it was almost an entire week of labor and. Oh my it, God. Yeah. It just, I'm if so you know sorry. anything about kids, she came out sunny side up. And it, so basically that just means it takes a lot longer and it's painful of course in the process, but she finally came out and I just, I don't know. I, I just wanted the pain to stop because it had been so long and so painful. And then it stopped and I felt like I just didn't even know what was going on anymore. Like I, I didn't even think to ask is it a boy or girl? Cause we were waiting to find out. Yeah. So I didn't even think to ask, is it a boy or girl? Does this child have all their fingers and, you know, appendages? I just laid back and I was like, Oh, finally. <laughs> and then they said, it's a girl. And it kind of snapped me back into it. And I thought, Oh yeah, that's right. That's what I was doing here. That's what this was all about. So <laughs> like that moment of euphoria. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm obviously I, I, I can't give birth. So <laughs> I, I can't imagine what that's like for the women out there that uh, give birth that moment of euphoria where it's like finally done and you get to hold your yeah, baby for the first over. time. But you're right. Like there's so much that comes after the birth that just, holy, yeah, it's a lot. And it it's a stop. lot that I didn't know until, you know, you don't know what you don't know until you don't know it. Yeah. And like, I love how people, everybody's like so apt to give you like parenting advice or like, oh, well this and that and the other thing. Right. But the truth of the matter is I come to find out that no one knows shit about raising kids. (laughs) (laughs) There's no recipe. There's nothing. (laughs) No one has to go through a class. That's for sure. Except for people who want to adopt. Like they, they put them through the ringer, but any two people can just get together and make a baby. It's nuts. Yeah. If you think about it. Oh yeah. It's super nuts, (laughs) but still it's like, no one has a recipe for like success. It's just like mm-hmm. whatever works. 
Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, <laughs> long tangent. Tell us about yourself. What you want to know, brother? You can give me your life story if you want to. Take it away. Oh, well, we won't go that far into it, but uh, I guess firewise, why did you get in touch with me? What was the thing that <laughs> brought us to be chit-chatting? Well, obviously, the great exodus piece that you wrote. That mm. is powerful because it's so freaking accurate. Yeah. So that's been a little while now since that was written, but yeah, we recorded oh, once, but I kind of shit the bed on that recording. So <laughs> that was supposed to come out like what last year. And I just, I'm like, no, nah, I, I, I can't release this. This is garbage. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> I'm especially sorry to you for wasting your time. Dude, we have our days. We all have our days. Everybody's got their worst day someday, right? That was definitely not one of mine. <laughs> uh, well, so, Okay. Yeah. I mean, obviously just like anybody else in fire that came out or came about just because all of these things were just circling around in my brain. And I, there were at that point, there was a lot of different articles that were coming out, but you know, in relation to wildland fire folks and the struggles and everything, but it was, it was like a slice, you know? So there was a slice of the mental health thing or a slice about not being paid properly or, or the fact that we're not called wildland, wildland firefighters, you know, there's not a wildland firefighter series. And, and so I just felt like for the general public and for legislators too, they weren't being provided the full context in one go, you know what I mean? And so, uh, I worked on that for several months. It was, it was a pretty significant undertaking to put all that together, but man, after it came out, I definitely got a lot of feedback from the fire community about it, which was nice. And I felt like the most common thing that I heard was folks felt like I had articulated for them how they've been feeling. Right. But just haven't been able to put it into words themselves. And so a lot of folks had said, I'm glad this is here because I can now send this to somebody and say, this is exactly how I feel. And this is the stuff that needs to change, you know, but I mean, here we are, however many months later. And I mean, there has been some forward progress in a couple of things, but there's still <laughs> a long way to go. Oh yeah. We have leaps and bounds to go in. I mean, if it wasn't for grassroots out there kind of pushing the envelope and then some other supporting organizations out there that are also kind of like going on with our, what we have to say. I mean, I don't think any of this stuff would have been even looked at. And the way, the reason I guess why I find your article so powerful and so uh, compelling is because it covers everything. And I think it's mimicked across a vast majority, if not all of the wildland firefighters out there. I mean, it covers mental health. It covers the mm -hmm. physical physicality of the uh, actual job, time away from family, raising a family, especially if you're in a dual fire uh, parenting scenario, <laughs> like all of it, man, it's everything. And it's so well-written and it's so eloquent and it just speaks volumes to what we actually do. And it's spelled out in a very, uh, layman's way to where the general public can actually understand it. That's gold. <laughs> well, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Um, but yeah, I think, well, the biggest thing is a lot of what was in there 
was born from my own experiences too, right? I mean, all the things you just rattled off. And I mean, that's a career in fire. So that's the thing is it affects the majority, not the minority. There's at least one component of that, you know, the stuff that's written there that affects people, you know, that they can relate to. I think that's it, right? Relatability. It's relatable because it's all accurate and true. And, you know, that's our circumstance, but how many people outside of the fire community actually understand just how, (laughs) how many cards in the, the deck are stacked against us. You know what I mean? So, yeah. And you touched on the, the dual career thing. And so for me, my career in fire, I've jumped all over the place. I've done, um, I started out in AmeriCorps back in the Midwest and that's how I got my fire start. And then I've been on an engine hotshot crew. Uh, I did helicopter repelling and smoke jumping and all, you know, like I just really, for whatever reason, I just really wanted to try everything. Cause I, I just wanted to know how all the different facets of fire operated and like what their capacity is. And I feel like you don't really know those things unless you get in there and experience it. So, um, so my husband is also in fire and when we got together, we were both on, well, I guess I, I was still jumping all over the place in fire, but for a good stretch there, we were both on hotshot crews and I felt like it could not be a more perfect situation. So speaking as a chick in fire, it is, I feel like a lot easier to be in a relationship with someone who's also in fire than not because it's a male dominated profession. And if you have anybody, any dude who's like insecure and trying to be in a relationship with a chicken fire, I mean, how's that going to play out? You're just out on the hillside for weeks on end with a bunch of dudes and, Oh, what are you doing out there? And why don't you call me? You know, that kind of stuff. So to that, just be yeah, with somebody. <laughs> What's that? I said, that's a relationship that's pretty much built to fail right there. If you're <laughs> right. Any like, and that and the insecurity thing too, firefighters, they smell the blood in the water and they just kind of like go after it too. So like insecurity <laughs> has no place in it. Yeah. No place for that. Yeah. So, but anyhow, when we were both on, you know, primary fire on the shot crews, that sort of stuff, it, I felt like it couldn't be more perfect because we both understood the job. We both were away. It wasn't like one person was left back while the other person was gone the whole time. And so, um, we both understood the job what was required and, and it was fine. I mean, we saw each other like once or twice in six months and then, you know, you kind of catch up and hang out in the off season, but it worked for us. And I feel like that probably works for a lot of fire folks until we had a kid. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And my husband was definitely more so, um, he was the one that was more so like, Hey, let's do this. And not to say that I didn't want a kid, but for women in fire, it is almost a guarantee that you're ending your fire career. I mean, there's just no pathways. And so, um, man, if, yeah, if you can make it in fire after you have a kid, you should give that person a Cape because it is not set up for women to stay in fire after having a child. So Anyhow, so we had a kid and then we were both still primary fire and it was just, it was impossible. And, you know, fire people aren't really the type to just kind of roll over 
and be like, Oh, I guess this isn't going to work out. I mean, I put in the effort and really tried to figure out how do we make this work? Not just for me, but for women in fire in general. And there's just, uh, yeah. I mean, there's so many things that have to come from the top to be able to make that a reality. So, um, anyhow, (laughs) we struggled through that for a bit. My husband was at the time when she was an infant, she was born in February. So she was a few months old by the time fire season started up. And I have a quick question to ask you about that. Did you guys time it? So no, no, it just worked out that way. Worked out that way. Okay, because I know a lot of people out there they try and time uh, the delivery or the the birth of their children like in the winter, like the off season. (laughs) And it's like, Like, how how fucking ridiculous is it? It is so. Yeah, I know it's so ridiculous. Like, let's get out the sundial and figure out (laughs) what are the appropriate times. Yeah, it's crazy to try and not have your child's birthday be in the middle of the fire season. Yeah, it's crazy. So no, we didn't plan it that way, but it just, we got lucky. And so that first fire season, he actually, he was detailed into the superintendent on the shot crew that season. And I was on the rappel crew. So I just kind of hung back at the base and did admin type work. And I brought my daughter with me and so many people said stuff like, Oh man, isn't that, I mean, that's just such a good, that's a great thing that you are able to bring your kid to work. That's so nice that that's an option, which is true, but also as the person, you know, I'm like a Sherpa packing five or six bags out from the house to the car, get the kid in the car, you know, like the carrying car seat and all of the different components. And then of course you get like halfway down the street and realize you forgot some other thing. And then you get to go back and you get to the base and unload everything. And then, Oh yeah, I got to get the kid out of the car too. And then, then you start work, right. Work where you're actually going to get paid some money. And I mean, I felt like I worked a lot harder and than anybody else at the base at that point in time, because I had to be like, get as much done as I could in the windows of time that I had before I had to go, you know, feed or do some parenting type related task. And, and I got lucky because my little girl is, you know, she's just an old soul from the time she was born. So she just kind of hung back and, and she wasn't an issue. So I don't even know how women deal with it when they try to bring their kid to work and they're not easy in that way, you know, or something like that. Yeah. But I mean, so it was, it was a challenge, but it was also pretty fun in the way that, um, you know, we'd have morning briefing and there's a bunch of dudes, you know, in their boots and greens and in the briefing room. And I have my little girl, her name's Ani and just started passing her around. So she'd just get passed around in briefings. And it's funny cause you know, she's only a few months old. And so here's this dude holding her that is dressed the way they are and with a scruffy face. And I swear she was looking at him like, are you my dad? You might be my dad. Homogenous A lot of fire folks look the same. There's definitely so, stereotypes there. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so that was pretty cool. And she got to crawl around in some helicopters and, and whatnot. So yeah, I mean, that part was pretty cool. Yeah. But a lot of people don't have that opportunity to bring their kids to work. And furthermore, once you have kids, like you should just automatically be a logistics section chief because <laughs> it's, it's pretty difficult. A thousand percent agree. Oh just, man. Yep. Grandfathered into that shit for oh, yeah. sure. hundred yeah. percent. But yeah. uh, 
moral of the story though, is like a lot of people don't have, uh, necessarily the, uh, opportunity or the, uh, I guess, grace that your district had for you and bringing your kid into work. It's not just like a, a given that that's mm-hmm. kind of rare from my understanding. Well, there's a, there is, I'm talking forest service specifically, but there is a, a form for that purpose. Like, and you make an agreement, it's basically, it's an agreement with you and your supervisor and it lasts for three months or six months or something like that. And then after that time period, you both reassess and there's kind of like trigger points on that document that say, basically, if your kid is an insane maniac, then it's not going to work and we'll have to say you can't do this anymore. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it did work out at my base. And I mean, most of the dudes that I worked with that were overhead on the rappel crew are dads themselves. So they get, but it it was interesting because the difference was (laughs) they, they were the dads, not the mom. Right. And so they had the situation where they kept going out on assignments and doing all this stuff. And their significant other was back with their kid. They understand the struggles, but they don't understand the struggles of like, Oh, I'm also, I'm going to keep working full time and have my kid here and take care of them. And you know what I mean? And do all these things at once. And then, uh, with (laughs) just the home side of that season, just that I'm speaking specifically about the season when Ani was an infant and man, there was this one stretch of time. There's, I'm, you have a kid, so you understand there's like the sleep regression stage where they were sleeping and all of a sudden they're up six times in a night and you don't know what the hell is going on, but you're sleep deprived right now. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I was going, or she was going through one of the sleep regression phases and you know, I'm flying solo. I don't have a bench. Like there's nobody on my bench to back me up. And Oh man. So it was a really rough stretch and my husband was gone and he was on an assignment in a spot kind of just remote wilderness in Washington where (laughs) it just so happened. Like if he stood on one foot on a mountaintop or something, he could for some reason send an email, but he didn't have cell service. Like he couldn't get text messages or phone calls through. And so, uh, (laughs) he sent me maybe one or two emails throughout this the 14. Right. And at this stage, I mean, I'm counting days. Like I just got to make it six more days. I just got to make it five more days. And <laughs> on day 14, I get an email and it's no, Hey, how's it going? Not, like no pleasantries at the beginning. It's just, just straight to the point. We've been extended to 21 oh, shit. period. Oh no. End of message. And man, I, I didn't know that I could have a tantrum like that as an adult. I mean, I lost my shit for a hot minute. Like I really do think that I might've something in my brain might've snapped right then because I, I just, I lost it. I was just like, what the, you know, and just cussing and punching pillows and just yeah, mad as hell. Yeah, you have every and, right to be a hundred percent. Like, regardless of fire or not, women bear the burden of child rearing ninety nine percent of the time, one hundred and ten percent of the time. And now that you're in a scenario where 
you, you don't, you, we all, it's no secret. It's no big surprise that we are completely in 100% reliant on overtime and hazard pay to make ends meet. Right. Mm-hmm. Now you're working base. Eight, it's at the base mm-hmm. doing what you can. But I understand the obligation that he feels that he has to be out and doing this thing. And he's also kind of beholden to the whims of the government and wherever, you know, fire takes you. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was the soup that season. There was no. (laughs) Yeah, there was no wiggle room for him him to be doing anything else but being out there in the field. Oh, yeah. But the immense amount of additional burden that, you know, being extended for 21 when you have a newborn at home. Oh, my God. I couldn't imagine what that feels like for you. Yeah. I, so well, I lost my shit yeah, for a Understandably minute. so. <laughs> and I did have, I had a moment. This is like where my head was. This is how, how significant the situation was, is I did have to talk myself back from calling dispatch to say, you need to get his ass back here. Like this, I'm nope. Yeah. Give it to the assistant. He's You're not allowed this. to extend them to 21. Cause I'm losing my shit over here. You know? So, um, <laughs> so I did reel it back and just, you know, had my moment and then went on with stuff. But yeah, I mean, having worked with so many dudes in fire who are parents, I can't even tell you the amount of times I've heard someone say like, yeah, man, I come on fire assignments to get sleep. Like I get a full night's sleep if I'm out on assignment, but if I'm home, it's crazy. Yeah. I've got an infant, I got a toddler whatever. And I mean, we know the deal and having been on both sides, been the person at home and also been the person out in the field. I know, like I'm not even making a guess. I know that it's harder to be the person left back. I mean, I think ages of children make a huge difference, right? As far as the complexity or, or burden, that the person at home has to. Are we really doing a complexity analysis on child rearing fire? (laughs) That would be awesome. (laughs) Yeah. What about your uh, gar? Let's see. Green, yellow, red. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. That's legit. Maybe we should just like invent a gar for families at home (laughs) with with kids specifically. Yeah. Yep. That'd be a good deal. So yeah. Anyhow, Uh, um, I did make it through the, that 21 day roll and without killing anyone. Yeah. Without killing anyone. But this is the other side of that story. Um, I don't talk about this very much. I don't tell this story very much, but, um, <laughs> so I was at my wits end, as I mentioned, and, and just really needed a break. And I had, sent a message after I fizzled down, you know, but I had sent an email back saying when you come back and they were going to have additional days off because they were extended. Right. And I said, when you come back, I'm out. Like I have to, I need to leave, go camping. I'm going by myself. You're uninvited. And so is our child. You know, I just needed time to not have to take care of anybody and to just, I think be in the fresh air and just not have any, responsibilities to anybody else. Right. And so just go disappear that was turn the off plan. Your phone and clear your head basically. Yeah. yeah. And get ready to do it again. Right. And so that was the plan. Of course he's like, yeah, whatever you need, no problem. I got this. And so I had my, like my backpacking pack, I had it all packed up by the time he got back and, um, I was ready to go. And it was kind of a joke. Cause I came up from the basement and I lug in my pack and, 
<laughs> so I set it down in the kitchen and he's like, Oh shit, you're like, you're really leaving like now. And I said, yeah, I'm out. I'm out. And as we're having this conversation, my phone is ringing in my pocket. And so I answer the phone and it was someone from the forest uh, letting me know. So there, well, the twist river fire had happened and the fatalities had, we knew that there were fatalities at that point. And I think we had the names by then maybe, but regardless, this phone call was calling to see if I had, if I would be willing to be one of the family liaisons. And I just kind of took a breath and I said, yeah, I will. Absolutely. And hung shit. Up. I mean, that, that was, that was it. So, um, that trip never happened out to get some downtime. It ended up being kind of the opposite of that actually in that moment where, um, I really needed to just be like, get myself back to, <laughs> to level. And instead I, I just, I gave everything that I had for the next long stretch of time to that family. And, um, and that is no easy task. That is no, heavy. That is, I, I would not do a burden. it. It's not a burden per se. It's, it's just really, really heavy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, if I had to do it again, I would still make the same decision. And, um, I just, yeah, the things that we put on our folks is it's significant, you know, cause that job you're interacting with people at one of the worst moments of their life. Right. And, and so I took that really seriously is, you know, what can I do to, because you, as a liaison, you kind of advocate for the family to the agency, but you're an agency employee. And, and so you're kind of walking this weird tightrope of like, these are all the policies and this is what the agency is requiring. And these are the steps and blah, blah, blah. And then on the other side, it's like, what does this family need and what is, um, what's missing for them from this situation? What can we do better? What can, you know, how can we make this? I don't even, I mean, it's not going to be better. You can't make it better, but you can make it less of a junk show. You know, the, the response, I guess, from, from the agency side. So, yeah. Um, so with that being the case, I just said, you know, we didn't have a bench of people for our, our infant daughter. And so my husband, because they actually weren't meeting two to one for a good junk or a good stretch of time during their assignment, he ended up having like five days off in a row or something. And so he was there. I don't even know. Like, honestly, I can't tell you who had my kid when I just know that when he went back to work, he gave me a list of people and said, you know, it was just friends from like local, our local folks. And he said, these are all people who said they'd be willing to take Ani if you need them. And so 
yeah, I don't know. I just know she was alive at the end of every day. And not that long ago, somebody had mentioned about how they hung out with Ani a bunch during that time period. And I, I honestly didn't remember, didn't know. And I thought, oh, that's nice that they got to spend that time together because I don't remember it at all. Well, imagine how <laughs> like one stressed you are Two, you're spread so thin that you have not even time to take care of yourself. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> yeah. After that happened and, you know, things settled down and I was able to finally relinquish all the family liaison stuff and just go back to my normal job. Once I got to that point, I took a few days off, but it was wild. Cause as soon as I took time off and I was like, okay, I'm done. I've got time to have a break. I got so sick. I mean, oh, no. I don't, and I don't get sick like that before my body just shut down and I was a hot mess. And so, I mean, it's not like it was an enjoyable time off, but my body needed to just <laughs> break down, I guess. It's that stress thing. Yeah. I mean, it weakens your immune system. It just kind of comes with the territory. I mean, if you're stressed enough, you're bound to get sick. It's like insult to injury almost. Yeah. Yeah. So man, I don't know how we got into all of that. Well, I guess it started with the dual career thing, right? Yeah. It kind of segues like that naturally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wild though, because like the, the stress of having kids, the stress of, you know, putting food on the table and then all the other little residual duties, especially when they become heavy, like if you're honor guard or you're a family liaison or it's a rip and fire season, it's, it's truly difficult and it's really hard to actually like narrow it down to where you could find that balance. And I think that's another thing that you also highlight very well in your paper is the work-life balance right there. Mm -hmm. Or lack thereof. Complete lack thereof, we should say. Yeah. Yep. You know, so after, after twist, there was a stretch of time where I was really trying to push for things to change, you know, in re response to the critical incident stuff, because as it was happening, this is the other thing about twist is there were several people who were directly involved on that fire that were good friends of mine. And so it wasn't just that I was seeing it from the liaison perspective, seeing how the force responded, seeing how, you know, what it was like for family. I was also seeing the other side with my friends who were in fire and what was happening with them. And there was just so many circumstances where I was like, man, it doesn't need to be like this. It could be a lot better. And all it has to do with is just information and education. And we just don't have that training. And why don't we have that training? Cause this isn't the first fatality fire. It's not going to be the last. And so I ultimately I decided like, it was one of those things I couldn't unsee after I saw it and, and I just couldn't let go of it. So I ultimately decided to resign from the agency and then just worked on building a critical incident specific course when I left and it took about a year to develop that, which was way longer than I thought it would. But after that point, I just started going around the country and putting it on for hotshot crews or repellers or whoever had me come. And it just, it, yeah, it touched on all of those things. And I'm not a fan of reinventing the wheel. So, you know, there's already, you will not stand alone and stress first aid wasn't out yet, but, um, but you know, the things that were available, I just, 
I didn't reiterate those things because there's classes already for those. So it was just, here's the stuff that we don't know. And it's really important that you do know if you ever end up in a situation like this. The elephant in the room kind of conversations. Yeah. 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 But just basic stuff too, right? Like if you were affected, if you were in a traumatic situation in this job, and then let's say eight months later, start having these physical things happening to you and you're like, what the hell is wrong with me? I don't understand what the problem is. If you don't know what a panic attack is, what it consists of, what it feels like, if you don't understand triggers, you know, what a trigger it is, what types of triggers there are and what to do about it. I mean, those are very small, basic things associated with trauma. But if you don't know the basic information to identify those, then it's just going to get more and more and more balled up until things are way worse. You know what I mean? And then, it and then people find themselves drinking too much or, you know, heading down the road for divorce or whatever the thing is. It's yeah. There's a lot of that stuff that it just needs to be identifiable to folks. And all of that is, is education. So yeah. Bringing about awareness yeah. to stuff like that is absolutely critical. Cause if, I mean, knowledge is power. If you don't know, you don't know. It's not like they yeah. sit there and train us to, say, oh yeah, well, this is a stress reaction or this is a panic attack or whatever, you know, they don't teach that stuff. They're just like, oh yeah, bad stuff happened. What happened? And it feels uh, previously it's gotten better granted, but previously back in TWISP, I mean, a SISM course, a SISM, a critical, critical incident stress uh, debriefing, it felt more like an interrogation until they refined it. And it took years to do that. Yeah. There's been a lot of evolution with the SISM folks over the years for sure. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. And yeah, it's just a, I mean, they're trying to evolve it from a, I mean, they have it for first responders and it's worked really well for years with police and fire, but they have a different setup, right? Cause completely different any, world. Yeah. Anybody can just show up to a city within a matter of hours, a couple hours, they could have a SISM team there. But for us, it's like, Oh, let's pull these people from all over the country and fly them to this Don't point. Fuck Egypt. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, not as easy. No, definitely. But not. with that course, uh, you know, I kind of, it was one of those things where every time I put it on, I thought, well, that's that many more people that have this information, but it did feel overwhelming because I'm only one person and I can't, go everywhere and put it on for everyone. So I had ended up building a, it's like a booklet, you know, kind of like the size of a task book. And so I chalked that full of all the content, not all the content, but a good majority of it that was in the course. So that way people don't have to take the class to have the information. And it's not, um, I feel like you'd get more benefit from taking the class just because there's you get the full context and you get to have those conversations and, and it's just more stimulating. But at the very least there's the resource guide where it's like, Oh shit, this just happened. And you flip to it and you have information like this is the role for a hospital liaison. This is what they need to be doing. These are the different types of entities that show up to a critical incident. You know, if it, if there's like a burnover or fatalities, things like that, where it's like, Should okay, what is this. people hear OIG, but what is it? Who are they? What, you know, there's, so there's just so many different things happening in a time like that. And you just experience something really crazy at the same time. Right. So maybe your close friend just died or, they're in critical condition and you don't know if they're going to survive. You have that happening internally. And then you're supposed to be just 
going along with the, you know, the playbook for whatever the agency says about when you have interviews and who, you know, it's just really disorienting. So anyhow, that, that resource guide, I put that out a few years ago and I'm just now finishing revising it. And so I'll have it back out there on the street again soon for folks, but it's not meant to be just for agency people. It's for anybody, you know, contractors, whoever state resources, it's the hope is like everybody gets the same information and there's just a bunch of resources in it, you know, like every different line of duty desk guide and, and just, yeah, there's a lot to it. It's very tedious to put together, but (laughs) But the end result is useful. Oh yeah. hundred percent. And it's, it's those little helpful tools is like additional tools that you can put in your toolbox to make things easier. Cause if you look at it at the end of the day, every wildland firefighter, especially the incident management teams, they're managing chaos on a daily mm-hmm. basis. And then if they have to manage catastrophe on top of that, well, now it just got a whole hell of a lot more complex. Yeah. Cause they so, still have to manage the chaos in the background on top of the catastrophe. Exactly. When it's interesting, yeah, the way that you said that, because when I was a family liaison at one point, what came up in my mind was it felt like being a logistics section chief inside of an emotional tornado. That was like the best way I could describe it, you know, and yeah, it's, it takes a lot out of everybody involved with something like that. Oh yeah. And it's, it's, it's wildly emotionally draining. Yeah. And the long-term yeah. consequences are like, it's like that whole adage is like, never trust a, t- a clinician without a clinician, right? <laughs> it's like, or a clinician that doesn't have a clinician rather. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, just like who takes care of the caretakers at the end of the day, folks like you, you, for instance, like who takes care of that? Yeah. And that was something that was sorely lacking after, after the fact was. Um, Continuous care. Yeah. Continuous care. It was just kind of like, okay, everybody just gave truly more than they even had to give in this scenario. Like everybody that jumped in and was filling all these different roles and we're filling all these different roles. And, and then, yeah, like the back end of that was rough. It was rough for sure. So, and it was just, you know, and that was part of, me wanting to provide that information too with the course and the resource guide is you may find yourself here and this is what you can do about if you find yourself here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. And uh, I think also it's the awareness thing that you were working on there. The awareness thing. I I think, yeah, it was Micah, uh, Micah booze when he was on my episode last um, he had something pretty memorable in his episode. And he says that the wildland fire culture is going through a mental health awakening. And, uh, I believe, uh, a couple other people kind of alluded to that, but I think that Micah pretty much said it kind of hit that nail on the head. It's like a mental health awakening. We're becoming more aware and we're becoming, uh, more adversarial to these mental health issues. And we're just actually picking fights with them instead of just, you know, bottling up, bottling them up in a corner and just waiting for them to explode. Yeah. I definitely, I agree that there has been an evolution, at least from the time I started in fire until now, there's been a big evolution with 
an acceptance where it's not just like this stoic bottle it all up. Don't say anything. Don't come to me with problems kind of mentality kind of thing. What's that? Or the don't talk to me if you have problems or don't come to me with your problems unless you have a solution kind of mentality. Yeah. Days past. But I think, I think the thing that pushes that the most is that so many people are affected that we can't pretend anymore. Like it's not a thing. Yeah. You can't just sweep it under the rug anymore. Yeah. Like our suicide rates are high and people are having, they're showing the effects of trauma. So yeah, it's, that's a huge component when you going back to the great exodus thing is providing those resources for our profession. I mean, that really is the very least you can do. I think that, and make sure that when people file a claim with OWCP, that it's not denied and, you know, doesn't turn into some sort of legal battle over hospital bills. Oh yeah. And we've all seen like the horror stories that happen with OWCP. I mean, it's not a perfect system. Has it worked successfully for people in the past? Yes. But the data that has been collected uh, by various organizations, not only just grassroots, they say quite the opposite. A, A vast overwhelming majority say that it's a fist fight to the end to get these things covered. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And, you know, there's the new, there's supposed to be the new, what do they call it? A task force or special unit or something like that special claims in unit. workers comp. That's going to be specific to wildland firefighters. But I mean, I don't know what that looks like yet. All I can say is I hope that they're using subject matter experts and any sort of stats that they have from previous claims to be able to identify these are the most common injuries, ailments, et cetera. And then two, man. Okay. So when I went through, you will not stand alone, that class, it was the first iteration of it in region six. So that's just for time timeline. It was a while back, but in that course, they had somebody come a workers comp person come and they were up there answering questions for this. I mean, there was like 60 people. It was a huge group of people in this room. So they're up there asking, answering questions about claims related stuff. And this woman flat out told us that when a claim like a CA2 claim for a mental health, mental trauma issue due to the job is submitted, the first thing they do is deny it. Like automatically? Are you fucking kidding me? It's categorically denied. And then from there, the person has the ability to go through the appeals process. And so I, I felt like my head was actually going to explode when she said that. I just, it's so offensive. It's, I I'm mean, surprised it didn't get violent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's messed up. And so, yeah. And I, I mean, I experienced that firsthand, unfortunately as well, because you know, after twist, I don't know, however many more months later, I definitely started to recognize that I was not my normal self. Like I was just kind of this rage ball all the time. Anything could happen. I could like drop a napkin to the floor and I just felt like I wanted to smash everything in sight and just hulk out. And it was weird. And here I am like with this infant and sleep deprivation. And so it probably, it wasn't really the best time to not be able to control my emotions very well. Right. And so I got to the point where I went to, I'm like, okay, I need to go 
see somebody because I, I couldn't figure out how to get back to normal on my own. And I had never been to see a counselor before. And I thought, what do you do? You go like once or twice and you're all set. So <laughs> figure this out. <laughs> I went to, at least I knew from having gone through, you will not stand alone. Well, not really that one, but the, I had been through a SISM course by that point. I knew the benefits of seeking out a trauma counselor specifically. So I did that. I found somebody local who was like a vet clinician. And I think I was the only civilian client that they ended up having there. But what I didn't understand until I went, was it, you know, I thought it was just this one thing, right? Well, I'm having issues. Well, I just went through this situation. And so that must be why these things are happening. And, and she's, well, let's talk about your background. I'm like, yeah, we don't need to talk about this. Let's just, you know, this is what it is. And <laughs> so it's a little bit of back and forth and then just being dismissive of it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, no, no. And so then the more we kind of dug into stuff, I mean, I, I kind of, a couple times I felt kind of like I was dense or something. She wasn't making me feel that way, but just the fact that something would come up and then, and she'd look at me and say, well, do you, do you understand that that is a really like, that's a big deal. That's a big event. That's a big circumstance that happened. And, and I'd say, yeah, but I mean, that's not nearly as bad as this other thing. It's like, this is the big thing. And she's like, it doesn't, matter. It doesn't matter if everybody survived the incident. It doesn't, you know, at the moment you're, when you're in a situation, you don't know what the outcome is going to be and your body responds accordingly. And then that's the kind of like the trauma that your body holds. And then you move forward and you move forward and, you know, however many things keep stacking up. And then, so twist was kind of like, at least for me, it was more like that was the thing that sent the avalanche down the mountain. And so you know, there was a lot of work, uh, so, you know, to figure out kind of where to go from there. But I got to say, I'm really glad that I did, that I did it, you know, and going back to why I brought this up is the whole deny thing, right? So after twist, the safety officer said, everybody feel, you know, I want everybody to be filling out CA2s that was involved with this because you don't know down the road if you're going to need this resource or not. Okay. And I, you know, it was like probably everybody else. I'm not going to use that. And then there I was. So, um, it got to the point, like I had insurance, so I was using insurance, but then I didn't just have to go once or twice. I had to go for a long stretch of time. And sometimes it was like two or three times a week. I was going to this, you know, this counselor Mm -hmm. and, to like work through this stuff. So then if you've got $30 copays every time that stacks up. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to submit this claim at this point so that I can at least get reimbursement for my, um, my copays. And the counselor gave me the documentation that I needed to submit with the claim. Cause I mean, first session, she diagnosed me with PTSD. Like it was no big deal. And it, yeah. And it was, it was definitely news to me, you know? So Anyhow, I submit everything and yeah, got that denial letter and going back to that feeling of just being so offended because it's like, man, so much was asked of me without training, might I add. Yeah, you're to, just thrown into you know, it. At the time, there was no training for being a family or hospital liaison. I was just kind of like, hey, 
you. Why don't you do this job? And really, the stakes are really high. You really can't mess anything up, even though you don't know what you're doing. Ready, go. They're like, okay, here you go. Good luck. Yeah. And so I was doing the best I could for this family. And um, so anyhow, (laughs) here I am after the fact, like they, they ask so much of you in the moment and then it's like, okay, but then you got my back on the, on the back end of this. Right. And it's like, psych, nope. And there I was. And I thought, man, I think the worst of it was, I wasn't just thinking about my situation. Cause it's like, okay, I have insurance and it sucks that these copays are piling up, but I can afford to pay the copays. Right. Yeah. I just think it's lame that I am having to pay them. Especially when you've occurred this traumatic experience at work. Kind of a, right. You know, a prerequisite yeah, well for OWCP claims, workmen's comp, hence work. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. me, right? Yeah. And so I, I, I guess where I, where it left me was I was thinking about, because they give you a detailed letter explaining like, you can appeal it. You need to do all of these things Jump in order yeah, to like send it in with your appeal paperwork or whatnot. And one of the things I remember, it was basically you had to list every single thing that could be construed as traumatic in your entire life. And you had to also put like, if you had ever gone to see a counselor before, there was all of these things that were, it was just like super invasive. And I thought, man, if somebody was struggling to the point that they were on the edge, right? like having suicidal thoughts at this point. And this is the only thing like they were relying on this system. That person's they're done. They're gone. That's it. That's the end of the story for them. And so that made me, it was like, I just felt like my blood was boiling and I, I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it besides is just really offensive. And I know that I was not the only person involved in twist that got one of those denial letters. And I'm talking like people who were directly involved, not just with the family, but like on the, on the line. So, yeah, so that going back to this special unit or whatnot with OWCP, I can only hope that that part gets resolved. You know, like the acceptance of trauma claims is not even an issue anymore. Why are they second guessing it to begin with? You know. Well, that's the thing too. It's like just recently, I mean, if you look at a structured department, you have the uh, presumptive cancer, healthcare, mm-hmm. cardiovascular uh, stuff going on. And that's like nationally covered, right? Mm-hmm. So if you develop like, I don't know, prostate cancer, for instance, and you develop this far after your career or any at any time during your career, it's automatically mm-hmm. covered, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't until just recently that that was passed for the wildland side of things. Right? Yeah. It's been what, a month? It's been yeah a month since it's passed but it's been yeah that's what i mean fucking decades i mean it's no big secret that this is carcinogen right this is i mean yeah is it like back to our guard thing that we talked about earlier Mm -hmm. but you know you have a high rate of exposure with a moderate uh toxicity but the amount of exposure over a course of multiple seasons of wildfire like of course Mm -hmm. you're gonna it's gonna mess you up man now yeah we have these things for these presumptive illnesses. So cardiovascular cancers, uh, all that stuff, right? The typical, it's almost a carbon copy of what the structure firefighters uh, have. Now, why, from my understanding, 
PTSD, PTSI, these mental illnesses, they're not presumptive and they fucking should be. Right. I'm just going to throw it out there and I'm very passionate about this topic, obviously, but those absolutely should be presumptive. Yeah. I hear you. Oh man. (laughs) I had gone through, I had mentioned a SISM class. I took a second one and it was through, I can't remember the name of that organization. It's a bunch of, it's like a big acronym. Anyway, NCS. I went to, what's that? Uh, Mission Center Solutions. I think they started doing it just recently though. No, it's some other thing, but anyway, it was like this big workshop thing in San Diego. They had a bunch of classes. I took the SISM advanced SISM class or whatnot. And it was kind of cool because the classes I did take at that workshop, it was a mixed bag of everybody. It wasn't, it was my first class that I had taken that wasn't an agency sponsored class. So there was structure, paramedics, there's uh, police officers from New York city, Oh wow! just, you know, tons of different folks, acupuncturists. And so anyhow, this whole thing about the EAP sessions, like how many EAP visits you could get for, you know, being involved in a situation. Cause that's the line, right. Is like, well, EAP is available, even though it's not necessarily like there could be trauma based or trauma centric counselors, but there's a lot that aren't right. And so you might end up with someone that's not very effective. And at the time, you. what's that? I said, it's assigned to you though. You don't have a choice or control over this. Yeah. I don't know. Cause I haven't been through it. From so I'm not sure if it's assigned EAP or not. Assigned. It's like, okay. oh yeah, here is your Joe Blow your counselor. Phase. Yeah. Yeah. So at the time it was only three visits that the agency, and that was, it was that way forever. And so here this, this conversation sparks up and then everybody, you can just feel the energy in the room. People are just starting to get agitated as soon as EAP gets brought up and the visits and all this stuff. And this structure guy behind me, he was from, I don't know, some SoCal structure department. And he was just getting all fired up and he's like, yeah, I mean, this is bullshit. I mean, what the hell? We only get 12 visits. What the fuck are you supposed to do with 12 visits? And I turned around and I was like, hold up. You get 12 visits. And he said, yeah. And I said, we get three. And he looked at me, he goes, what the hell are you supposed to do with that? And I said, I don't know, not much, but we sure as hell don't get 12, you know, and that was 2016. They were already getting 12 visits in 2016, you know, so we've, I feel like we're just kind of slowly progressing, right? Like there's more visits available now through EAP and, and, you know, there is an effort to try to expand some of the the things that are in place and, and all that, but man, it is tough being in a line of work where almost every single thing requires an act of Congress and, you know, they don't tend to get a whole lot done. So ain't that the it's, truth? It's challenging. And then, and then what happens on the back end, right? I mean, like we talked about at the beginning, I wrote great Exodus a while ago now, and now we're in fire season and oh yeah, we're like at 70% staffing nationwide. Yeah. The staffing that- is low. I mean, it's not a joke. Right. And it, all I, I felt like all I was doing in that piece was just pointing out the obvious. I mean, to any, to any firefighter, I think that's all it was is like, I just pointed out the obvious. Yeah, thanks captain but, obvious. But when the public doesn't understand <laughs> if you don't have public support, then it's not going to go anywhere. Exactly. But that's the thing is I don't feel like that piece, that article got to legislators. And that was the thing that bummed me out 
quite a bit. You know, I just, that was my hope is like, this can explain it. It's like the translation, the secret decoder to get you to understand how dire the situation is. And yeah, so I don't know. I'd say anybody who's listening to this, please send it to your legislators so that they understand what the hell is really going on. Yes. And that's the thing is I'm going to send this episode and your article to Nagus. And I know he's very responsive about, I mean, he's, he's one that introduced the uh, Tim Hart uh, wildland firefighter paid and classification act. Right. Mm -hmm. So he will, he is very attuned to this and his, all the people on the, uh, I guess I believe that'd be the natural resources and energy committee committee. He's tied in with those folks as well. So hopefully it'll like open up people's eyes, especially on Capitol Hill. Cause if they don't know, they don't know. And then to ask them to walk a mile in their shoes when they've got 900 billion other things that they have to do as far as a legislative function. Right. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I know yeah. that's the thing there. Yeah. There's always a thousand things that need critical attention. Like their, their job is basically triage, right. As they're signing bills and doing whatever is like, what's the thing that's hemorrhaging the most. But at this point, it quite literally is putting out a fire like literally yeah. because and there it's ain't going to be many people left to do too. that at the rate that folks are resigning. You know, you know? It, it's, it's kind of crazy because this dumpster fire in a, uh, in a, I guess a, a, a sense, <laughs> this whole uh, resignation, this mass wave of resignations, it's, it's no big surprise. You called it. I've been calling it people before our generation of firefighters have even called it. I mean, the, 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 it was on the horizon. It was very plainly and obvious to see ever since probably the nineties, maybe early two thousands, whatever, regardless, it's been coming for a long time. And when we talk about these things like EAP and OWCP, I mean, speaking of the twist fire, look what happened to Danny. (laughs) It's been years, man. Mm -hmm. It's the, it's the shit like that. That's keeps happening. And it keeps happening time and time again. And it's that whole lack of recognition. Even then, I mean, shit, that, if you were to do that just alone, you'd have an in- instantaneous huge morale boost if you're considered a actual professional firefighter. But at the end of the day, when people look at us, especially from a legislative context, it, we come to find out that it seems that we're only regarded as firefighters, not when we're on the ground, but only when we're in it. Yeah. You know, you had posted something that had that statement in it and it, that hit me squarely when I read it because that is very much the circumstance, unfortunately. It's not, it is no, it's a hundred percent is. And then it's politically convenient to like grandstand is like, Oh, this wildland firefighter spent 11 years in his career, dedicating his, his life to the service of, you know, the communities around him and public lands. Everybody high five, shakes hands, go home. They look good. Agency looks good. However, the families are at home fighting OWCP and getting death benefits for their fallen loved one. Yeah. That breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, you know, this community of people, the fire family, obviously no, <laughs> it's built of people who don't shy away from hard work. Kind of the opposite. Right. Oh, yeah. And professional problem solvers. Yeah. And so because of that, people like we won't let the system fail. Right. And my husband and I have this conversation too, but it, I think the big 
component of that is we're so used to propping up a broken system. A, like we just keep doing it, but B, if we don't, there's real and significant consequences for our people. Right. And so we're kind of stuck in this continuous cycle of like, Oh, it's broken. It's still broken, but I have to, you know, plug it up and patch it up to make it quasi functional. And it's putting us out, you know, as individuals, you're putting more workload on your plate. You're doing all these things. You're, you're fronting somebody cash for undetermined amount of time because they're a new employee and their paycheck hasn't been distributed to them for six weeks or whatever. You know, there's all of these things that it's like, man, it's, it's not even the stuff that we're not asking for anything extravagant. We're asking for the basics. And I mean, but this is the point, right. Of the Exodus is we're not asking anymore. People are done asking. People are just leaving. Yeah. And so now I guess in that way, it's like, we're not propping up the system anymore. Now you can see the system's broken because people are leaving it and it's getting worse and worse. Like this is a rapid decline and it's not for like, there's quality people in the fire organization still, you know, that are here, better agencies though. you can only do so much with less and less and less and less people. And so time is of the essence to get this figured out for the sake of the people that are left and, you know, and people don't want to leave. That's the other thing. People aren't leaving because they're like, oh, I can't stand people in the fire family. They suck, you know, and whatever. Like people love this profession and there's a camaraderie that's unmatched, you know, and and there's a lot of pride in the work and there's integrity driven people. It's and you spend so much time outside in the elements. You know, there's all of these really great things about it. That's why people stick with it. But that's, I think the most shameful thing is you are people that really truly love their jobs are being driven away at this point. That's sad. And you know, what's funny is that they spent this entire career or partial of a career getting trained by arguably the best wildland firefighters out there, right? The most highly trained, highly organized some might even consider the largest professional firefighting force in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Shit, there's like 25,000 to 30,000 wildland firefighters out there every season. Yet we're leaving in droves to go get jobs at these other agencies, whether it be state, municipal, infrastructure companies, private entities, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. hell, they may even like have such a sour taste in their mouth that they're leaving the profession altogether and going doing something like I did. I'm in marketing now. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're kind of foregoing passion for paycheck. Yeah. I had to make that sacrifice. Work-life balance, right? Yeah. You can actually, you know, manage to not get divorced (laughs) in, in other professions where it's, it doesn't require, that's the thing. Cause in fire, it requires everyone involved in your life to have a hand in it. So, I mean, thinking about people who are married with kids and they end up at some remote duty station and you've got this. So your spouse is just like there in the middle of nowhere with your kid while you're off, gone over and over and over again. There's no community. There's no network. There's no nothing. It's just this person, you know, your significant other and your kid waiting out the fire season you know, or, or it's the people who like, Oh, I'm 
fire season starting, I'm flying across the country and I'm going to work several States away and we won't see each other until the season is over. I mean, those are real circumstances within this community. And, um, I don't know. I think over time we, there's things that folks tend to accept just because it's always been that way, you know? Yeah. It's like a status quo kind of mentality. Yeah. And I think at this point people are, it's like, it's kind of like the magic fairy dust has, has like the cloud has parted and people are seeing clearly and folks are just seeing all of the components that need a lot of attention, like serious attention. So yeah, that's where we're at and I can't fix it. No, it's going to take an act of literally an act of Congress at this point to fix it. I mean, but I think, uh, the, the voices are growing to a point where you can't avoid the unfortunate truths about our career, our profession. And I mean, when you look at it, we're, why are we not professionals? I mean, we have people calling us unskilled laborers and these are senators that are talking about talking like this. It's like, no, we don't just professionally dig holes in the ground with 20 dudes <laughs> out in the forest, you know, or men and women out in the forest. Yeah. You know what you just said right there, that is a big reason why there's a a full paragraph in the great Exodus that specifically details different things that experienced firefighters know how to do to help folks understand that it's not just a case of like, Oh, well, all these people just quit. We're just going to grab, you know, hire a bunch of rookies and we'll be good to go again. It doesn't work that way. And yeah, if you're on the outside, you truly just have no idea. And I don't know, I don't let things like that ball me up too much because it's, you know, it's pointless. The person like that dude, he can come out to the fire line and and give it a shot and we'll see how he feels when the day's over. You know, I'm just going to say it. Uh, McClintock, if you're listening to this, I would love to interview you. (laughs) <laughs> I'll have you sit here. I'll invite you to my house and you bring your secret service or whatever. And yeah, there's the house. We can sit down and record and we can have this thought exchange. I'd love to hear your opinion. See? Yeah. And for me, I, like I don't need to talk to him. I just would like to take him out in the field for a day. And you know, like you really don't need to speak any words about it. Just like, this is what we're doing today. Yep. Ready, set, go. And then, yeah. Here you go. Last I mean, tool. No people radio. are really good, good at luck. talking on things that they don't know anything about. So, yeah. well, I mean, there's also an ivory tower syndrome with the majority of Americans. Unfortunately, I think it's really easy to talk shit from that uh, ivory tower. Cause you're not experienced. I mean, we have other uh, public figures, uh, political figures saying, uh, well, they're comparing the loss of multi-million dollar mansions that are wildly insured. They're comparing a loss of a community, a minor loss of community in the grand scheme of things, comparatively speaking to other fires that are wiping out entire subdivisions, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, they're comparing these, uh, fires and don't get me wrong. I feel for the people that own these homes and I respect what they've earned in their life, but houses, they can be rebuilt. Forests, and lives, lives are irreplaceable and forests take hundreds of years. I mean, you and I won't see these things grow back within our, our own generation, our own lifespan, right? Yeah. And yeah. when they go on and compare this to the war in Ukraine and the genocide that's happening over there, that kind of rubs a raw nerve with me. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Apples and oranges 
for sure. Yeah. One of these things is definitely not like the other. Yeah, exactly. They don't, they're not in the same category. So it's not worth comparing. Not even remotely. Yeah. And then two, I mean, they stopped the prescribed burning (laughs) across the board because of the current situation in New Mexico. And, and I think if anything, the government, I'm talking specifically about government. I feel like this is their responsibility. I mean, we have PSAs, right? Public service announcements. And there's such a great lack of education. It doesn't take much, just like little PSA snippets that before people have to watch it or before people watch a YouTube video, they have to watch a PSA or, you know, just like in people's daily lives, insert these PSAs that let people understand how fire ecology works, right? Like that there's what an ecosystem, what the life cycle might be for for a forest because fire is a very natural and needed element of any ecosystem or forest, but the, you know, different cycles, right? One forest might have a 10 year cycle. One might have a hundred year cycle. I'm no ologist. So, I mean, I don't know all the cycles specifics, but I do know that fire on the landscape is needed and it's been used by our indigenous, you know, um, it's been used by indigenous peoples, all over the world since the beginning of time. So um, if anything, we did a great disservice saying, Hey, we're going to put out all of the fires and do that all of the time for, you know, 80 years, whatever the amount of time. And, and yeah, we're seeing the effects of that. Oh, hundred percent. And I think that, you know, the the short sightedness of that decision-making it's not lost on, on me fire plays an intricate role, uh, not only with humanity itself and like, I don't know, kind of how we got to where we are today as the most technologically advanced species on the planet. I mean, we have the entire library of Congress on a cell phone for Christ's sake, but we would not have evolved unless it was for fire. And it's really naive to say, and it doesn't take a, or it's naive to say that fire doesn't play a role in our ecology and has been there since the dawn of time. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Weird thing. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. Like you just said, you and I are no ologists by any means, but mm-hmm. it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that fire plays a crucial component within these ecosystems. And we should be looking at it, not as a fight, like a firefighter is kind of like, well, wildland firefighter is kind of like a a misnomer. Yeah. We're trying to protect structures, infrastructure, lives, property, whatever, get that. Mm-hmm. We're trying to minimize and mitigate damage. Right. Yeah. And prevent that catastrophic fire. Yeah. We need to be learning how to exactly. live with, we need to learn to live with fire. Yeah. Live with fire. And I mean, we already are right. And it's not going well because we're not doing it in the way that is most beneficial. Oh, this but is 12 fire rounds. Is scary to people and they don't understand why would you start a fire? Why would you put fire in the ground? Why would you put more smoke in the air? And you know, in times when there does, you know, if there wasn't a fire and now it's smoky and my allergies and all of these things, but oh, I mean, my it's first way worse problems. to have these mega fires and entire valleys are socked in for two months. Right. Oh, yeah. and so think- all of this again, here I go trying to explain things for folks, but a few years back, what was it? I feel like it was maybe after the campfire, I had written a piece called wildfire 101 because it was this, it's like, man, it's just that people don't understand. And we do, and the government does folks a disservice by not providing these small little education snippets just interject them. Like I said, where, and when they can billboards or whatever, give people the 
the little education on that stuff. But anyhow, so yeah, I put together this wildfire 101 piece in hopes that people would get a better understanding of the history of fire and, and how we use it and its role on the landscape basically. And then too, a breakdown of, cause we've all heard like, Oh, you're, if anybody says they're a firefighter, Oh, you're a smoke jumper. So you jump out of helicopters then oh my God. You know, just... or you work for Cal fire. <laughs> so, so there's a breakdown too of every different fire resource and what they actually do and what a standard day on the line looks like. And yeah. So anyhow, that's there for folks if they want to send that to their uncle who thinks they jump out of helicopters or something. That's like one of those things though. I mean, it's like bringing back to your point right there about either a, the public perception of wildland firefighters being only smoke jumpers or working for Cal fire. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you look at that though, I think as a whole, our agencies, whether that's DOI agencies, plural there, or the U S forest service under the USDA, right? We Mm -hmm. have a huge PR thing going on right now. We have never taken advantage of PR. They historically have never taken advantage of PR besides Smokey the Bear and maybe Woodsy the Owl, but or Auntie mm-hmm. the Antelope. There's an obscure one. I love for Woodsy. You. Yeah. <laughs> an obscure one for you, Auntie the Antelope. Um, go, mm-hmm. go yellow machine there. Um, but yeah, if you, I think the public perception of why people think that we're either A, smoke jumpers or B, cow fires, because smoke jumpers, they have great PR. Everybody knows who a smoke jumper is. I mean, shit, they make movies about them ever since like <laughs> Howie Long, you know, terrible, right? <laughs> terrible, but it still puts the name smoke jumper in the forefront of people's minds. And it's memorable. Yeah, true. Right? Now, conversely to that, you have Cal Fire. Cal, for, Cal Fire has awesome PR. They have great PR. They're like a PR agency with a firefighting workforce. This is like PR. <laughs> they, they like do primary PR, but they have firefighters on the side. They firefight on the side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's their side it. hustle. But you ask anybody uh, pretty much across the nation. Hey, what do you think Cal fire does? Oh, they fight forest fires. They're awesome. They're mm-hmm. Heroes. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that. Everybody. Everybody knows that. <laughs> you say you're a wildland firefighter. What do people say? Oh, you're a smoke jumper. Oh, you're with mm-hmm. Cal fire. No. Apples to oranges again. One of these things is mm-hmm. not like the other. Mm-hmm. So I, I digress though. <laughs> I digress. Well, so with that, all the stuff we've been talking about, I feel like, you know, it's just a lot of heavy stuff. I mean, and it's just reality. It's where we're at with a lot of things. And well, there's a lot of complexity and nuance involved with this discussion as well. There's not a one size fits all kind of solution to this problem, but I mean, you could start with taking care of the people on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where you should always start. But so there's all of this happening. And I think for me, cause I just, yeah, like I said, it, it was quite a push to get that piece put together and written and then doing volunteer work on the side to try and help push some of this forward too. It can be, it can just feel like all the negativity and just the heaviness of this, where it's like, man, why, why do people even do this job? Cause there's so many things that are messed up right now, but we love it. Exactly. And so that is what I think really kind of triggered this thought for me. So, um, I had this idea and it came to me when I was in, Oh gosh, it was during the pandemic. I had gone to fill in with a hotshot crew um, 
specifically because it was the pandemic and I was kind of there to take notes and see how they were doing things in order to kind of navigate the pandemic through the fire season. Everything was brand new. And so anyhow, during that time period though, I definitely, I mean, the hotshot crew to me, doesn't matter if it's my crew, just hotshot crews in general. That's where I feel the most at home. You know, all of the different things that I've done in fire, I'm a hotshot at heart for sure. And so that was awesome. Just being back on a crew and, and just the dynamics of that, you know, people, the interpersonal relationships and, and just all of it. Yeah, it was awesome. But there's also things that have changed over time, you know, technology wise, there's, since I was on the crew, obviously there's like way more dependence on trying your hardest to find service in the field so that you can scroll through your social media, apparently. And a lot of people really care about battery life (laughs) for that kind of stuff. And so that was more or less lost on me, but I mean, I, I mean, there's tons of fire apps now that people use for work too. So it is a thing, it is a tool, but at one point we were just kind of sitting around doing that thing, like waiting to wait. And I looked over and someone had like, you know, gotten into their line gear and they pulled out a book from their pack. And I just, it was like <laughs> balm on my soul or something to see that happen, you know, cause it was just like seeing a like, unicorn. Uh, well, it does no, exist. it's just that like, there's still these old school components of firefighting that remain, you know, like yeah. we still have, we like, we have these advancements and so much of things in the field are the way they've always been. That being one of them is like, yeah, you just kind of throw a, a book in your pack because you never know when you're going to have these moments where it's like, Oh, we got to sit around and wait for an hour or whatnot. And so anyhow, all the heaviness that we've been talking about, I was feeling that too. And I just thought, man, there really isn't a good space for people to, because we're a storytelling culture, right? By nature. Like we sit around warming fires, we're telling stories during mop up and, and that's a huge component of what builds our camaraderie, right? That and being together 24 seven all the time. (laughs) But, um, but anyhow, I thought, man, we don't really have a place where we keep those stories. Right. I mean, it's, it's just kind of all handed down verbally and, and we learn, do a lot of lessons learned through storytelling with staff rise and things like that. But we have websites for people to talk about leadership or teamwork, team building, talk about lessons learned. We have places where you can go if you want to like advocate for change, but there's not like, where's the place that holds our actual fire culture? You know what I mean? And so I came up with this plan to put together a book of short stories, you know, true short stories from firefighters along with, I was also accepting poetry and artwork submissions too, because I mean, there's so many incredibly talented fire folks out there that, I mean, there's no platform for this kind of stuff. And so anyhow, this last fall, I was accepting submissions, I don't know, for a couple months and got some really awesome stuff. And right at the moment, I'm in the process 
going back and forth with the mastermind behind all the design formatting stuff. Cause that is not my jam, but you know, we're kind of working out the finer details of the final product right now for this book, which it's called hold and improve because that's kind of what it was born from. Right. Like yeah. that's when you pull out your pack, when somebody's like, hold and improve, you're going to be here for who knows how long. And, and then too, it's just, it's kind of the play on words of like, that's the moment that you can take to improve in a different way. You know, you can sit down and read a book, but anyhow, um, where was I going with that? Preserving these stories here. Oh yeah. yeah. Preserving the story. So, oh yeah. So the thing with this though is, I mean, one, one edition of this book is not going to contain all of the There's stories no that are out There's there. No way. And so my initial plan was it's a book that will have volumes. So this is what is about to come out. Hopefully I was hoping by the end of May, but that didn't happen. So maybe July, let's say Hopefully. But, but this fire season still, we'll say this fire season, but yeah, so this is going to be volume alpha release. And then from there, my hope is that it's just going to be an annual thing and folks can put their submissions in, in the fall, like it was this last time around. And we'll just keep going. Bravo, Charlie Delta and make and your way around see. a division. <laughs> just keep going. It'll be amazing if we get to Zulu, but yeah, I mean, and some of these stories are, hilarious and and crazy but then i didn't really just want to have like the wildest of wild stories in there i really wanted the book to more than anything be relatable to folks in the field so there's some stories that might seem kind of simple because there's not some big huge thing that happened but it's so relatable to anybody that spent time on the line you know like the stupid so anyhow this play. is my hope to or invent to kind of like harness some of our culture because it just feels like if you put water in your hands, you know, it just all slips through. Like, how do you contain camaraderie and the fire culture? So anyhow, I got to get you tied in with Bethany Hannah over at uh, the American wildfire experience. Cause she's about the closest thing, but it's, it's mostly modern uh, storytelling formats. It's like new projects, you know, it's like, yeah, no, she's it's got gonna the, be the future past, if you will. Yeah. The American wildfire experience. Yeah. Smoky generation. Same, mm -hmm. same organization. Yeah. So I did something. I feel like it was the first year that they had those grants or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a piece for that. Yeah. It's nice. Cause it's mixed media. It's like, it's um, you can do videos, photo, all that stuff. And, and with this, it's kind of, I guess those are the two things. Like she's got the digital components in this. this <laughs> is proof is like all old school because I'm not doing a digital copy. I don't want, like, I want it to be a tangible physical thing. And then I had a lot of people ask about photo submissions. And I think just a book of fire photos would be awesome, but I really wanted in this situation, I wanted the words on the page to tell the story and, you know, let people conjure up their own images in their mind of what this plays out to look like for them. And then, you know, the artwork too, but yeah, I, I actually have watched quite a few of the, on the original Smoky Generation page, I've watched quite a few of the videos on there, which are awesome mm -hmm. and definitely recognized a few faces in there too. But yeah, I would recommend anybody to go through there. And what we were talking about earlier with um, just kind of what people experience in this line of work, she does have a section that is focused on 
critical incidents and like traumatic experiences and man, yeah, there's some pretty powerful stuff in there. So she's doing good work. Yeah. But I think that, um, I mean, that's like firsthand accounts of stories of what happened now encapsulating the culture of wildland fire and preserving those stories from all walks of life, past, present, and continuing on into the Mm -hmm. future in a written word format, like a book format. It's never been done before. That's why. And there's some, there's some pretty good ones from like the old school, (laughs) like 80s hotshot crew stories that are nuts. And yeah, just really just total it's entertaining because of the history of it. And I, I do in each volume, I want to make sure that there's some sort of like legend slash folklore component. Cause we have a lot of that too. And so oh, yeah. there's a story in this one about Ed Pulaski and I'm hoping maybe the next one will do like big Ernie or explain the big flip, some, you know, something like that. So yeah, I mean, fire folks, I, <laughs> the best people. They're just fire families, the best makeup of folks. And so, yeah, I just wanted with all the heaviness, I wanted to be able to put something out into the fire community that speaks to why we all do this in the first place and helps us to kind of remember that part of it, you know? Oh yeah. It's that whole walk walk a mile in someone else's shoes kind of mentality. It's hard to do until you really truly understand it from some of these stories. I mean, they're like legends, right? I mean, you have these like legendary characters like you know, Big Ernie <laughs> so or Ed Pulaski. They're like larger than life, you know? Yeah. Lance Honda. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Lance Honda. Honda. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. All these folks. Exactly. Dewey, Rebby. I mean, just, yeah, literally larger than life. Dewey was. Yeah, Dewey was. <laughs> I don't know if you knew Dewey. He was like seven feet tall. Anyhow. Um, but yeah, so another good component of this, of Hold and Improve is... So it's by firefighters for firefighters. I mean, and anybody else too, but the other part is that I'm going to donate some of the proceeds that come from this to organizations that help firefighters. So it can be more of a circular thing too. make it come full circle. Yeah. That's awesome. That's right. Yeah. That's just, it's so wild, man. It's like this, how do you encapsulate the culture of wildland fire? It's like, it's crazy. It's like I said, it's, it's kind of like a Rubik's cube to figure that out. I don't know, but yeah. this, we'll see if this helps to kind of grab a little bit of it at least. And then, you know, going back to the part by like four firefighters. So all these stories are written just like they'd be told around the warming fire. Right. So there's all these acronyms and fire jargon all over the place. Are you going to do an appendix? Like the Cimmerillion? Yes, I have if a you glossary <laughs> of fire lingo. Dude. <laughs> when I sent it to the guy to do the formatting, I was like, Oh yeah, I have this glossary too. I'll send that to you. I was still working on it. Cause I went through every person's story to make sure whatever terminology they used was also in the glossary for people to be able to, um, decipher it. And, but then I would be like typing out a definition and end up using like two other terms in the definition like, Shit, define the definition for that one and for this one. And, and so when I sent it to him, he goes, dude, this is like 30 pages long in the back of the book. And I said, well, is what it is. So there's a lot of acronyms. I mean, we're for the government. So, I mean, it just kind of comes with the territory. <laughs> yeah. Right. There's right. so many acronyms, but yeah, I think it'll be helpful even for like rookie firefighters too, who don't know a lot of the jargon that we use yet. So yeah. Oh yeah. There's a lot of crossover from military jargon too. Mm-hmm. Kind of, kind of go hand in hand. 
Yeah. But it's interesting though. I mean, it's, it, it truly is like wildland firefighting culture is definitely a hidden culture, if you will, because I mean, like no one knows and like the silent professionalism, you know, it, it, you kind of mm-hmm. keep these stories to yourself to, so to put them out there uh, in a public context and kind of encapsulate that into one centralized place. I think that's going to be something special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It looks, oh man, the guy who's putting this to get, like the design part of it together, he's doing an awesome job. So it's got pop-ups, right? Like for those folks, like, you know, hot shots, I can't read. <laughs> <laughs> well, I said there's pictures. I mean, pictographs, I guess it's okay. artwork. <laughs> Perfect. Lots of pictures. Lots of pictures. Yeah. You got to read the words on this one. It's a big deal. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, we're rolling up to the end of the show here, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I just, some just tells me that with this whole infrastructure thing too, I guess in closing with this, I think that people are, uh, are, are just finally getting pissed and fed up and it's showing and people have no, I guess they, they have no chance, but to listen now because it's going to show this year. And I, I'm, I'm really worried I mean, last year, the year before 2020, 2021, they're pretty gnarly fire seasons, but now 2022 is rapidly approaching and well, it's, it's here. Let's just say mm-hmm. what it is. I mean, look at the desert Southwest right now, region three, like, holy shit, man, that's yeah. early. And we have less people to do more. Yeah. It's scary. Of course we do. Of course we do. <laughs> it's not like we didn't see this coming. Big surprise, big reveal, Morty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But at least uh, we have folks like you doing good work out there and telling the story of not only the culture with your book, which is going to be huge and preserving that legacy, but also telling the story of the realities on the ground. I think that's wildly important to furthering the causes of making those conditions better. Yeah, for sure. So I would say, I mean, going back to it, if I would just advocate for everybody to be pushing this information, right? Like if it's the great exodus or, or whatever the thing might be that you think that you found an article that you found Accurate that's worthwhile. Yeah. Do something Accurate. like send it to people, send it to people in your family, send stuff to your legislators. And, you know, I just keep thinking cause we're kind of like one at a timing it right now. Right. With, you know, you contact your representatives and then five days later I contact mine or whatnot, but it would be, I think it'd be awesome to just have like dates on the calendar on this date flood them. Everybody send it to your legislators. So it's kind of like, Oh, there's a whole bunch of people who feel this way, you know, and just keep doing, you know, whatever it's like the first Tuesday of every month or something like that. But, but something that kind of compiles them so that it can be, people can see the volume that of concern. Unavoidable. Everywhere you look, it needs to be seen. And yeah. this summer, everywhere you look, there's going to be smoke. Yeah. And- well, well maybe, I not thoroughly appreciate everybody who is out there doing way more with less and in making it work in a broken system. And I'm really frustrated about all the people that all the good folks that have left. I mean, I just heard recently about another good fire friend of mine who resigned and he was excellent and it's the fire community's loss, you know, and I don't blame him. It's just, yeah, I can't, I can't blame anyone. I I, I completely get it. I understand. I did. Yeah. Yeah, You did it and then came back. 
And then left again. And then left again. (laughs) So nice. You did it twice. (laughs) Things come full circle. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, after you quit the first time, it's pretty easy to do it again. Yeah. (laughs) "Eh, You know what? I'm good. Yeah. It turns out I was, yep. It's not for me. So I, I just feel like I can do a lot better for our folks on the outside, unfortunately, than on the inside. So I had that same realization. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for chit-chatting with me all this time. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show. I definitely appreciate it. But before we part ways and go off into, well, from this digital landscape here into the real world and screaming kids, (laughs) um, I always give you the opportunity, our guests to give a, I always give the guests an opportunity to give a shout out to some homies, heroes, mentors. Who do you got for us? Oh man. I think probably because of the conversation we've been having, the first person that comes to mind is Vicki Miner. Oh yeah. She is a saint. She is the OG fire mama. And luckily I was uh, blessed enough to go to her retirement party last weekend or two weeks ago. It was cool, man. Yeah. She, I mean, nobody, and I mean, nobody has done more for the fire community and the fire family than that woman. And and her legacy lives on with the foundation still, even though she's retired and yeah, she's amazing. And she was, she had, I'm saying had past tense because she is not retired, but she had the best personality to be able to intermix with firefighters, you know, like she was compassionate, but she also was such a smart ass or she is, she is such a smart ass that didn't oh, go yeah. away <laughs> you know, when she retired. But yeah, man. And oh, I mean, I've been in situations uh, and people close to me have been in situations that the fire foundation has, the wildland firefighter foundation has shown up. They always show up oh, yeah. and, and they show up most of the time when nobody sees or knows that they're there or what they've been doing in the background. And so, yeah, Vicky's the best. I love her. She's a saint. And, uh, speaking of her smart ass attitude, and that's one of the things, uh, during, uh, the retirement presentation that was given to her, uh, they said that her personality is you get one or the other, either Roseanne Barr or mother <laughs> Teresa. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've heard that statement before and it is accurate. It's literally inscribed <laughs> on the wall of the new facility. It's, it's, it's hilarious and it's so accurate. Yeah. yeah. She's awesome. And man, I, I just, I went to visit her. We were traveling through me and my husband and my kiddo and she was, I don't know, maybe eight months at the time, something like that. And definitely had to stop in and see Vicki. And, and so she got to meet our little one and, and she is really into the little ones for sure. And, you know, there's like, they had this big bear, these huge stuffed bears, which they, the foundation gives to all kids who've lost a parent and that sort of thing. And so Ani was kind of climbing around on this big bear and she's like, Oh, she really likes that bear. And I said, well, yeah, that's, you know, it's kid thing. It's cool, man. And then next thing I know, we get this humongous box in Washington she shipped us. It was a big dog, but, um, she still has that thing, big dog. And yeah, like that's oh, yeah. her pal. And so, you know, just things like that, that Vicky, she, and she doesn't, she just doesn't take no for an answer. She just does what she's going to do. Oh, hundred percent. She's kind of more of a shoot. <laughs> she's like Han Solo. She just like shoots first and asks questions later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's, she's sly too. Cause 
uh, a good friend of mine, he was in a situation, he got smashed by a tree and he should have not survived. Like the, the situation was that he, it's amazing. He, he lived, but he got life flighted to Boise and I drove through the night to get to Boise. And I, you know, I, like, I didn't know if he was going to be alive when I got there. It was that kind of situation. And getting to Boise. I mean, I didn't think about anything. I didn't think where am I staying? I just started going. And so once I was there, I'm at the hospital all day, every day, but I think it was maybe the first morning and Vicki was there at the hospital and she's asking, Oh, well, just kind of nonchalantly. She's like, well, where are you staying while you're in town? And I said, I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. And she's like, Oh, well, you should stay. There's this hotel. It's not too far from here. And she's just kind of Cause she's local. I'm like, Oh yeah. She's just giving advice. Right. And so, um, I like the hotshot crew and I, like I was there, we were all there. Like anybody that came for him came to the same place. And I don't know, I was there for a week. And when I went to check out, I don't have a bill and neither does anybody else. And I was like, what the hell has just happened here? she just pulled a Jedi mind trick on me. And you know, it's like, I well, she won't say shit coming. about it either. She won't say a damn thing about it. She'd be like, man, you're good. <laughs> no. Yeah. And I mean, that's that kind of, that actually surprised me because I guess up until that point, I always just assumed the, you know, the foundation is there to help people like the injured firefighter and their family. I didn't think about how, how much the ripple effect, you know, how far out it goes but yeah, I mean, they're there for the fire family too oh, 100%. in that situation. So yeah. Oh yeah. She's amazing. And I love her. Oh yeah. Then, uh, yeah, Burke's, I, I think Burke's got the same compassion as well. And, uh, I think he's, he's taking the helm next. So, well, he is. Oh at yeah, the helm for now, sure. So I mean, <laughs> Vicky's his mom. He better, he better, <laughs> he better be right. Well, yeah, I don't know. Of course I, he is. I've seen like some, he was literally harassing her, uh, doing the old, old uh, I'm your son. I'm going to harass the shit out of you. Kind of, uh, kind of lying over there while we we're up there. And, uh, mm-hmm. she gave him that look that, you know, that unmistakable, I'm going to kick your ass mom look. Uh-huh. <laughs> and oh, I think yeah. they're still like, Oh, are like, all right, all right, all right. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, she's a formidable force for oh, sure. Yeah. There is that video of her birthday where he tricked her and like smashed the pie in her face. It's hilarious. If you haven't seen it, I would oh, look yeah. it up. Oh, yeah. That was a nice one, Burke. <laughs> <laughs> Good folks over there. Yeah. All right. Well, where can we find it before you go? Mm. As far as like your, your blog and your socials, oh, all yeah, that stuff. Yeah. Not like you personally, obviously <laughs> we're not going to do that. Addresses. Well, I'm not like super technology person. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not technology advanced, I'll say. So my th- first thought was like, I'm in Tucson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have, well, yeah. So the blog is the evolving nomad and I'm on Instagram with the evolving nomad. And some tells that's me you're what not I got. very active. <laughs> that look. <laughs> so yeah. Copy that. So the evolving nomad and I'll, uh, I'll post some links in the show notes and direct people to your wonderful article. Oh, that thanks. way people can, uh, I don't know, encapsulate that link and just send it off to every little Senator out there and yeah, man, representative out there. Just keep pushing till something happens. You have to No, you gotta be your own best advocate. So it's going to take an army. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah. Brie, 
Thank you so much for being on the show and we'll catch you on the next one. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. Take care. See ya. And boom, there we go, ladies and gentlemen. Another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast is in the books with my good friend, Bree Orcasitas. Bree, thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining uh, the article in depth and your experiences of what inspired you to write it and also leave the agency. Not only once, but twice. <laughs> yeah, Bree is a former hotshot, former dispatcher, former smoke jumper. I mean, you've pretty much done it all. And yeah, you have... Uh, written some very powerful words and i appreciate it and hopefully the great the great exodus can be uh stopped or if not slowed down by passing some of those uh critical uh things that are sitting there on crap on capitol hill i almost said crapital hill (laughs) i guess that's how i guess that's a, a slip on how jaded i am about the whole subject but yes uh, you got some time and you want to read into uh, Bree's article, go over to www.TheEvolvingNomad. Yeah, TheEvolvingNomad.com and check out her blog where you can see a bunch of writings of hers and they're all really, really good. So go check it out. Bree, once again, thank you so much for being on the show. As for the rest of you, please stay safe out there. It's going to be a doozy of a season. I know we're, uh, the predictive services are just kind of off the charts. So hopefully it's not too crazy bad, but yeah, be safe out there. Um, special shout out to our sponsors. We've got mystery ranch makers, of the finest damn packs in the world for fire and beyond mystery ranch built for the mission. Go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check out all they have to offer. We've got a hotshot brewery, kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause. And a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the wildland firefighter foundation. Go over to www hotshotbrewing.com and check out their full line of everything they have to offer. We've got the ass movement purveyors of the finest poo bearing propaganda on the planet. Funny name series about conservation and stewardship to the land. Go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement and enter code anchor point ass 10 all one word at checkout for 10% off your entire order site wide. Then we've got last but not least, the Smoky Generation, also known as the American Wildfire Experience. If you want to find out more, go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check out all that Bethany has to offer. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Bethany, you have a kick-ass organization over there. Keep it up. As for the rest of you, y'all know the drill. Stay safe. Stay savage. Peace. <laughs>